Our sermon passage today is uh, John 18, so we'll start in John 18, verse 1. If you're going to use the Pew Bible uh, in front of you, it's on page 904. We're going to read uh, John 18, verse 1 through 1916. So page 904. It's a passage that's uh, familiar to, to most of us here. All right, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him, with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Aeneas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I, had, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said was, is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Aeneas then bound him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? You, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted a crown t- together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I had the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are, you are not a friend, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word and um, the, its in eternal implications upon our lives and um, so much of the story here today as we uh, look at these accusations against Christ, the, the innocent one, the perfect lamb. Uh, Lord, we thank you for sending a savior um, to rescue us um, from a plight um, that we could not rescue ourselves. Lord, we pray today that our hearts would receive your word with uh, joyfulness, Lord, that it would multiply We pray for Pastor Brian that uh, you would use your servant um, to exhort your church today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you, Brady, for reading our text this morning. We come to um, this section in our text here 
that uh, is following his farewell discourse. We see here his betrayal. We see here his accusations that are laid against him. We see here the trial that is, he is put towards leading up to uh, the crucifixion. Today, today is quite an amazing passage. There's a lot that we can see in it, so I'm excited uh, to dig into that. Before we do, I just I did want to mention that we do have a membership class coming up October 6th, and uh, if uh, you're interested in just learning more about our church um, and attending that class, please either come see me or you can sign up online. Love the opportunity to uh, work through uh, our church covenant, work through our doctrinal statement, and, and things like that with people. So just to let you know who we are as a church, so we'd love to have you. Um, today we're looking at uh, this section in John, and just as a reminder, John's desire is that his gospel would proclaim Jesus Christ to all who read it. And this morning, I think we're going to see some glorious aspects about Jesus Christ as we look into this text. And so my main point is this, we proclaim Jesus as the one true king who gives himself as the substitute to earn salvation for his people. I mean, there's two amazing aspects in that that we're going to see here in our text today, that idea of Jesus being king and bringing in the kingdom of God. And that Jesus is this substitute, the one who will atone for his own people. Before we get into our text, let me pray. Lord, deal bountifully with us. We may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things that you have here. As we look to your son, Jesus Christ, specifically. Oh Lord, may we come with eyes open, ready to see His glory and His goodness. Lord, do not hide Your words from us, but let us hear them, let us see them, let us feel them, let us know them. Lord, we know that this world is hostile towards You. It is hostile towards Your truth. It is hostile towards Your Son. And Lord, we are merely people that have been brought out of this world. If, if we are yours today, you've brought us out. And, and, and yet, part of that world still remains in us, Lord. So, so let us not be blinded by our sinful desires to this morning as we come to your word. Let us not come to merely feel good about ourselves. Let us not come to have done something religious today. Let us not come to, to be able to say nice things about Jesus, but Lord, let us be confronted by your truth. Let us, let us delight in what you have to say. Let our eyes behold your wonders this morning. The wonders of a king would die for his people. What king does this? Oh God, it is your king that does this. And we come to worship him this morning. But not us alone, Lord. Lord, we come with others. We come with brothers and sisters across this earth seeking to worship and exalt and glorify your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray for New Life Church in the Congo this morning as they meet. Lord, may they be blessed. May they be encouraged. May they be strengthened by your word. May they have seen the wonders of you. Lord, we also uh, pray uh, for uh, Ridgewood Baptist Church right down the road. The new pastor, Pastor Clint, as he brings the word. Lord, may they see the wonders of you today. Lord, we pray for Gospel Hope Church, Lord. We ask that you would give grace to them and Pastor Ryan there. Lord, give, give them a delight in your word and see the wondrous things of you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Today, our text points us to the reality that the kingdom of God and the king of this kingdom are eternally connected to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom are eternally connected to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That this king gives himself as the substitute to earn salvation for his people. Interesting, a German pastor and theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer once observed, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. It is true. I mean, who hears of this? When we think of kingdoms and kings, it sometimes can be difficult for us because we weren't raised in that kind of environment. Raised in this democratic republic, this wonderful place of freedom without a king. And in fact, as we studied American history, the last time we really were in contact with a king, it didn't really go well, right? Revolution. (laughs) Revolutionary War, it didn't go well. So, you know, this idea of kingdom and kingship is, is somewhat either maybe somewhat foreign to us or maybe something we don't really care for. Um, and yet what we find is that what is declared in Scripture is Jesus as king. And God's kingdom as, as on earth is coming. And so king and kingdom is very important throughout Scripture. And as the king... We expect what? That he would rule sovereignly over his kingdom. That's what we'd expect if we started to study other kingdoms, maybe not like the kingdom of Britain because now they have a constitutional monarchy. Anyway, I don't want to get into all that. But, you know, they don't really sovereignly rule. But there are other kingdoms in the world that do, and there have been kingdoms in the past. And in fact, as John is writing this, he's writing this uh, primarily to uh, Jews, but also to others living under what would be termed as a kingdom, although they called it an empire, with an emperor who had complete sovereignty over his empire. They understood this aspect. And what happens in that empire? Everyone, everyone lives to serve the emperor. And in fact, when we consider the idea of someone sacrificing, it would be somebody else giving their life to protect the emperor. I mean, we can kind of understand that, right? We got this thing called the Secret Service. I mean, just the name itself is kind of cool, you know? It's like the Secret Service. Anyway, what do they do? One of their roles is to protect the President of the United States, and they're willing to lay down their life to take the bullet for him. I mean, that's we can kind of get to understand that. That's how it's supposed to be. So when we come to, come to this text that we're here now, and we're going to see in our text, this king who is willingly sacrificing himself as the substitute for his people, that is, as Diedrich said, a bit strange. It is a bit odd. It's meant to be the other way around. And yet, what we find is that In God's eternal plan, this is the only way that we would even be a part of this kingdom. Only way that a people would be part. So I have four questions we're going to talk about this morning in light of our text. The first one is this, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. There's at least 11 references to kingdom or king in our text this morning. Some might see more than that based upon some illusions or some implications, but there's at least 11 references. Now the idea, the biblical idea of kingdom is uh, actually could fall into two different categories. There's a broad usage of the kingdom of God, the idea that God is sovereign over everything, and uh, we're actually studying about this in our ABF class at 9.30s on Sunday morning. We're talking about God ordaining and governing all things. And so this idea, this broad usage of the kingdom of God, everything is under God. And then there's the narrow usage of the kingdom of God in the Bible, which is specifically this. God's people 
in God's place under God's rule. And currently it's fulfilled in Jesus as the King ruling in the hearts and minds of all believers. But uh, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we see different ways in which the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule has been manifested. And as we think about these two kingdoms, we realize that one kingdom, this broad kingdom of God, no one enters that kingdom because everything is already in it. We are all under the sovereign rule of God. But when we think about the narrow kingdom of God, and we go to a place like John 3, verses 3 and 5, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3 and verse 5, he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So in the broad sense, God is over all. Everyone is under that. But in the narrow sense, there is a kingdom of God that exists that has his people and his place under his rule. And, and, and as Jesus tells Nicodemus, one must be born again to enter that kingdom. In our text, we see both of these kingdoms being referred to. We see the broad kingdom being referred to in chapter 19, verse 11. What do we read here? Pilate is troubled by Jesus being silent, and so he's like, don't you understand? I have the authority. Authority to release you or the authority to crucify you. And what does Jesus say? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over the situation that Jesus is in right now in our text. But that's not the only way the text uses it. In fact, the majority of the references are actually to this narrow use of the kingdom. It's what Jesus refers to in chapter 18, verse 36, when he says, My kingdom is not of this world the kingdom is not of this world it's a different kingdom definitely a strange kingdom it is a strange kingdom that jesus says in our text is not of this world it's a kingdom not like any kingdom this world has ever seen it is heavenly it is spiritual now, this doesn't mean that the kingdom of jesus is not active in the world it is, clearly. I mean, Jesus is actually incarnated into the world. The King has come into the world. And He comes proclaiming the kingdom. Repent and believe. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to share the gospel of the kingdom, we're told. It doesn't mean it's not active in the world or it doesn't have anything to do with the physical world. Of course it does but not in a way that, that Jesus says here, not in a way that His followers or His servants would fight. See, He's like, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers wouldn't have let the Jews have me and turn me over to you. The Jewish, Jewish rulers wouldn't have brought me in because we would have fought. But this is not how Jesus' kingdom works. It's like what Paul says. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In turn... As we come to this text, and as we, we, we can clearly see the physical en enemies of Jesus rising up. Jesus has been telling His disciples, this world is, is going to be hostile against you. Why? Because it's hostile against me and you're following me. And now we see clearly evident this hostility. But we have to realize in Jesus' statement here, the enemies Jesus confronts are ultimately spiritual. Not physical. 
The king has come not to wage war just against the the physical presence of Rome or the, the religious hypocrisy of Israel, but against humanity's greatest enemy, which is sin. Sin upon which the kingdom of this world is founded. The why the world's system is hostile and against God because of the rebellion against God because of sin. This is Satan's domain in humanity's living place where we all begin as we saw weeks before Ephesians 2, 1-3, through 3, and we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. It's humanity's domain. is in this anti-kingdom against God's kingdom. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what Jesus comes to fight. This is the enemy Jesus seeks to destroy. And Jesus is God's king and God's kingdom representative invading that world. Calling his people out of that world into his kingdom even while they still live in that world. And this idea of Jesus coming and invading and calling on His people, this envisions the church as a reflection of the kingdom of God on earth in the midst of Satan's kingdom. Truly, it is the mission of Jesus. We see, we read here, verse 37 of chapter 18. After He says, My kingdom is not of the world, then Pilate says to Him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. It is the mission of Jesus to bear witness to this truth. His kingship, His kingdom, and His people, notice, and everyone, He says, who is of the truth, listens to my voice. And his people, everyone who is of the truth, hears King Jesus, believes King Jesus, follows King Jesus. They listen to his voice. And we have to understand, you know, that ties us back to when Jesus talks about being the shepherd and the sheep. What do they do? They hear my voice and follow me. His people. We hear King Jesus. We believe in King Jesus. We follow King Jesus. That's what he come. He's come to, to institute this new aspect of the kingdom of God where God's people, those who hear the truth, God's people, in God's place, in Christ, In Christ alone we stand. Under Him we find our hope. In His place, under His rule, with Jesus as our King, Jesus as our head. We are His body. This is the kingdom of God. As Jesus even presents it here in verse 36 and 37. It's the kingdom He seeks to bring. But the second question, why do we need the kingdom of God? Because without the kingdom, there is no hope for humanity. Without the kingdom, there is no hope for humanity. Because there would be no people of God under God's rule. All of us would be lost. kingdom means that some will be saved that there is a people of god that will exist in god's place now in christ under his rule 
And that's why Jesus talks about and preaches about the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God in Matthew 4, Matthew 24, and Luke 4, and Luke 8, Luke 16. Because no kingdom means no king, means no people, means no good news, means no hope, no heaven for humanity. But the kingdom is good news because there is a king. There is a people. There is the good news that this king is going to come and save his people. So there is hope. The hope of heaven is granted to us in the fact that there is a king who's come to fight for his kingdom and to win his kingdom. In fact, we can rightly say there ultimately would be no significance to the cross without the kingdom of God. What good is the cross if it does not transfer people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son? Some people want to look at the cross and say, it's just a, it's just a good example of how we're meant to, to, to suffer for others. How we're meant to be selfless. But, but to say it's just that is to remove the greatest significance of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus actually saves His people. He transfers them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His Son. That's what God does on the cross. Out of the sinful domain of Satan. gives us forgiveness for sin but not only that a new home a new identity and the fact is i i desperately need that my old self cannot cannot stand within the presence of god i will be judged condemned rightly That's why I need to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. A new person in a new place under a new king. Remember Ephesians 2 tells us. It's not as if we're not under the rule of someone in our sin. We are. We are under the rule of sin and Satan. We need to be transferred out. We need to be delivered. And if the cross has no deliverance, if the cross does not bring us into the kingdom, it loses its significance. We could also say there is no kingdom of God without the cross. Kingdom people are atoned for people. So the king of the kingdom must be an atoning king. And this is what the Old Testament promises regarding the Messiah, the the promised one who is meant to deliver Israel. That he is both a conquering king, Jeremiah 33, and a suffering king. Savior who takes the sins of His people, Isaiah 53. We don't need that though. We got the Word, right? Alright, so we see here Jesus is both in His fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is both the conquering King and the suffering Savior. So when Pilate says to Him, so, are, so you are a king? Oh, he doesn't look like a king. But he is. But his kingdom's not of this world. He comes to conquer sin. And through the cross to transfer people into his kingdom. Which leads us to our third question. What is atonement? What is atonement? Atonement is the work Christ did in His life and death to earn our salvation. That's why we have that there in the main point, that idea of our King earning our salvation. Because in the atonement, the work Christ did in His life and death 
to earn our salvation. Now, the, the chief aspect of the atonement is that it was a penal substitution. And in penal substitution, what we mean is that the penalty that is due to us for our transgressions is paid for by a substitute. Ultimately, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Jesus Christ is the one who takes our penalty. Now, we can see that idea of substitute here in our text. In fact, we find that John here references the Passover three separate times. In verse 28 of, eight, of chapter 18, in verse 39 of chapter 18, and then in verse 14 of chapter 19. He references the atonement, and, or, or the, the Passover. And what happens during the Passover? It's a feast that is meant to remember what God did when He passed over the houses of Israel, not killing the firstborn. Why? Because they sacrificed a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts. That the lamb was the substitute. Not only that, we see in chapter 18, verse 14, another a pointer towards this idea of penal substitution when John reminds us again of the prophecy of Caiaphas. Verse 14, it says, And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews earlier. I believe it was in uh, chapter 11, I think it was. Chapter 11 of John here. Yeah, chapter 11, verse 50. That it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And uh, we find in chapter 11, verse 50, it says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see that? Jesus is the substitute for the children of God. Jesus is the one who will bear the penalty due, rightly due, justly due for our transgressions. He will pay for them. So one aspect of the atonement is that we deserve to die as the penalty for our sin, and yet Jesus is our substitute. He is our sacrifice. But there are other aspects of the atonement as well. We can see uh, a couple of them here in the text as well. One is uh, that Jesus is our propitiation. So not just penal substitution, but propitiation is tied into the atonement as well. Propitiation means that we deserve to bear God's wrath uh, against our sin, but Jesus bears it. Jesus is the absorber of the wrath of God for us. And we can see that alluded to in chapter 18, verse 11. Peter so bravely whips out his sword and cuts off a guy's ear. And we hear later that uh, Jesus, or we hear in another gospel, Jesus heals that ear. John doesn't tell us here. That's not his point. His driving points to get to what Jesus says. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As you go to the Old Testament, you find that this is often a reference. The cup that must be drunk is often a reference to the wrath of God. That God's enemies, those who are wicked, must drink the cup of His wrath. And in some places, they're like, you know, they have to drink it all. And this, is, this here we see Jesus is willing to drink this cup. It reminds us of in the other gospel. Uh, one of the other Gospels, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And what does he ask the Father? Lord, if, if it be possible, I pass this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He is willing to drink the cup, to be the propitiation, to absorb the wrath. 
And we're not there yet, but I like to get ahead of myself. But that cup is empty for God's people. There is nothing left in the cup of God's wrath for God's people to drink. Because Jesus drank. Not only that, we are separated from God by our sin, and Jesus is our reconciliation. Brings us back to God. We see this in partly implied in the reaction of the high priest and the religious leaders. What is their their representative of the, the whole nation and what is their view of Jesus? Take him away. Crucify him. In fact, they go as far to say, we have no king but Caesar. And uh, lest we become too hard on them, realize when we read Ephesians 2, we were no better, right? Our king was not default Jesus. We also, in our sinfulness, declared, we have no king. Separated from God. Yet Jesus is our reconciliation through the atonement. Not only that, we are in bondage to sin and, in, and to the kingdom of Satan. We've already talked about kingdom, right? That's where we were. But Jesus is our redemption who brings us out, who transfers us. Oh, we are slaves in Egypt. But Jesus has brought us out. Not so that we can just live however we want. Why, why does he bring the children of Egypt out? To serve their God. To know him, enjoy him, live for him as a part of his kingdom. It represents this manifestation of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament here. of God's people, Israel. We're brought to God's place, Mount Sinai, but ultimately the promised land, so that may, they might live under God's rule. The picture of the ultimately ultimate reality of it as Jesus comes to give his life as an atonement for his people so that me, we might be redeemed. Number four, why do we need the atonement? Because humanity cannot earn its own salvation. It cannot. Our sins bear real, present, and future consequences, and we are incapable of saving ourselves from them. In our own strength, we are blinded by our sins. This is not just a message for those who are unbelievers today or not Christians. It's a message for Christians as well. For the religious and the ir- irreligious, our sin blinds all of us. We see the present realities and the present consequences of sin in our text and how different people responded to Jesus during this whole interaction. We see Pilate and his dismissiveness of Jesus. Here Jesus presents to him the kingdom, the kingdom of truth. And what is Pilate's response? What is truth? Now you may say that that sounds like a good question if he really wanted the answer, but that's not what we see here, right? As we as we read this, we see that Pilate is not concerned about an answer to his question, what is truth? Rather, he is demonstrating his cynicalness, his dismissiveness of Jesus and all that he has just said. What is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. Pilate's attitude is worth considering. 
we find that this worldly man actually used a considerable uh, effort to try to free Jesus in the interest of common justice. Nothing here informs us that he believed what Jesus said really in any way. He just didn't think Jesus had done anything wrong. Yet ultimately he falls short in making any commitment to stand by Jesus. To do such, Jesus has already told his disciples, would mean to face the hostility of the world. And Pilate's not going to do that. He tried his best to free who he thought was an innocent man, but in the end, he wasn't going to proclaim his allegiance to Jesus. He wasn't going to face the hostility of this world, even, not even to the point of just proclaiming Jesus, but even to the point of, of, of following through with common justice. Ultimately, he allows one who he believes to be innocent to be killed. The Jewish leaders see in them a hostility and hypocrisy. In fact, as you look in chapter 18, verse 28, you'll read that they wouldn't enter the governor's house, Pilate's house, because they didn't want to defile themselves. Here they are with this backdoor trial that doesn't fit the laws that they say they hold. And yet, they don't want to be defiled so that it doesn't mess with their celebration of Passover week. In fact, in verse 30, they say Jesus is evil, though they have no proof. And we work our way back and see that constantly they are confronted with Jesus' generosity in His healings. In his miracles, one of their own, Nicodemus, says, we know that you come from God because no one could do these things. And that now it's come to a point where Jesus is evil and in verse 31, deserves death. And at Pilate's declaration of innocence, what do they cry? Crucify him. Crucify. Jesus was crucified, we're told here, because He claimed to be the Son of God. These people knew the truth Jesus proclaimed. But they rejected it. They were hostile to it. Willing to embrace their own hypocrisy. In fact, in many ways, they can teach us how we ought to treat our sin. (laughs) Not how we ought to treat Jesus. In Scripture, we're often told to crucify sin in conformity with Christ's death. And in Him, we died to sin. And we look at the people who sought to crucify Jesus, these religious leaders, and we see the, the hostility within them. This Uh, We could almost call it this religious indignation that they had towards Jesus. An an indignation that rightly would be felt against sin. The sin in us. As they unrighteously were indignant at Christ. The one who has actually made sin for us. Such hostility, such hypocrisy, but they alone aren't the only ones. It's not just Pilate's dismissiveness. It's not just the Jewish leaders' hostility and hypocrisy. But we see as well in this text, Peter's denials of Jesus. In our text here, the disciples abandon Jesus. And Peter denies Him three times. And here we see that even at best, Man's desires are still influenced by sin. And those sinful desires still affect the will. Though they believed in Jesus, they claimed to be committed to Jesus. Apart from Him, they could do nothing. 
as human beings, we have no weapons of our own to fight the desire of sin. And Peter's denial of Jesus stands in contrast to Jesus, who in the face of his accusers denies nothing. Jesus doesn't deny the the accusations in order to save his life, but Peter denies Jesus in order to save his. It demonstrates to us our desperate need for something outside of ourselves. As much as we might look up to Peter and to the other apostles, Jesus is the shepherd. Peter's just a sheep. And Peter shows his inability to save himself from sin, to earn salvation. He does not have it in him. It also shows both in Peter and in the Jewish leaders in Pilate the desperate need of all humanity for someone to save us from our sin. Sin. Sin rules over our desires. And we desperately need a Savior who will save us. There's no way for us to claw our way into the kingdom. It comes by a king who gives himself for us. So what should we know this morning? You need an atoning king who will sacrifice, who will propitiate, who will reconcile, who will redeem. You need Jesus. And he is king of his kingdom, not just at the moment of salvation, but every day. In every moment. We need this King. So, what should we think about that? How should we walk? I want you to consider some things. Is Christ's death an adequate substitute to pay God's penalty for your sin? Do you believe that? Christ, Christ is an adequate substitute. I guess adequate That's that's the right word, but it feels not adequate enough. (laughs) When you think about Jesus Christ, your King, coming to be the atonement, act as your substitute, dying for you, what attitudes and emotions come forth in you? We looked at all the technical things about Jesus being the king, about what his kingdom is like, about what the atonement is, and why it's important. But at the end of the day, what change does that bring about in you? Do you see that and say, I I want that king. I want to be a part of that kingdom. I I need that atonement. I fight sin every day. I need to reminded, I need to be reminded that Jesus has borne the wrath for my sin. That Jesus has reconciled me to God. That Jesus has brought me into this redeemed life, and I don't have to live for sin any longer. What attitudes and emotions come forth? And what is one way you would choose to live differently this week? That would show how you valued your king, your atoning king. Maybe as Jesus has described his followers, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You say, I need to be a follower of Jesus like that. I need to be a hearer and a doer of his word. I need to be, as Jesus said, like the man who builds his house on a rock because he heard the words of Jesus and he does them, is what Jesus says. Embracing Jesus. Maybe you need to identify your hostility towards this truth. 
Some of you may be here today that are hostile towards the truth of Jesus as your atoning king because you're not part of his kingdom. What does he say? Repent and believe. But some of you here are a part of his kingdom. And yet, practically, in your everyday lives, you live in ways that are hostile towards your king. Towards the sacrifice that he gave. I mean, generally, I can't point out you know, all the specifics in, in your life, nor do you want me probably to stand up here right now and do that. <laughs> Let me talk about you for a no. What is it that happens when we choose sin? We're at war with our king. We snub our face at our king. We say, this is going to give me pleasure. Not you. This is what I want to follow. Not you. And your sin... Whatever that sinful desire is, just remember, it has not sacrificed itself for you. Jesus has. Your sin doesn't free you. Your sin doesn't bring you into a glorious kingdom that's, uh, that has the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and faithfulness, and gentleness, and meekness, and self-control. Your sin does not bring you into a kingdom like that. It is a kingdom of darkness and despair. Maybe identify your hypocrisy regarding the truth. We can all come here and sing songs. We can all sit in our pews. We can all say nice things to each other. But then again, practically live our lives. You know, the, the religious leaders here, they didn't want to defile themselves as they broke their laws, as they rejected the Messiah given to them by God. But we don't want to defile ourselves. Some have said that Christians are the most hypocritical people in all the world. And I'm sure there are many <laughs> Christians that would fit that. But we are not meant to. And why? Because we know we're sinners who had to be atoned by Jesus. We don't have to pretend, but we need to follow our King. We need to fight sin. We need to live out the atoning life that He's given to us. Maybe you can identify some hypocrisy in your own life. Or maybe like Peter, you're tempted to deny your Lord. I'm not saying that someone's coming up to you saying, are you with Jesus? And you're like, uh, no. Um, but again, when we transfer this into our daily lives, what is it that happens when sin comes to us? When Satan sends his devils to tempt us. When this world around us is hostile against us. When we face all that evil and wickedness in the world pressing down on us. And even the delights and pleasures of that wicked world and our sinful desires. What happens? They come and they say, are you going to live like a Christian right now? You don't need to. Come do these things. Come enjoy these pleasures. And just like Peter, we say, oh, I'm not with him, Jesus. I'm going to go. Enjoy the pleasures of sin. I'm going to go and maybe live good, but I'm not going to proclaim Jesus because of the hostility by, that might be there. And in turn, we teach people that 
People might be able to live good lives, but they don't need Jesus. What are we doing? Like Peter, we're denying him. In our everyday lives, we have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to proclaim Jesus as our atoning king. Let us not miss out. Let us not demonstrate any hostility towards him, any hypocrisy. Let us not deny our king, but let us follow after him as hearers and doers of the world. My prayer is what Jesus says for each of us here. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. May it be so for each of us every minute of every day. For our King, our King has given His very life so that we can live that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Jesus Christ. Oh, how glorious He is. Oh, how good He is to us. Lord, we do not deserve such great and marvelous gifts that we have been given. And so we worship and we praise You. Lord, we stand firm on the foundation of our atoning King, Jesus Christ. May He be our life. In Jesus' name, amen.